I'm very pleased to welcome here today Chris Payton, the brains behind the publication Purposeful People, described as a triumph over adversity with a purpose-driven mindset. Chris has compiled the book with the help of 19 quite exceptional business leaders, all of whom were invited to share their own personal stories and unique perspectives in terms of what it means to live a purpose-driven life. The authors have all had direct experience navigating the ups and downs of life with an unwavering sense of purpose and service in their field. The book includes advice and anecdotes from everybody who took part, ranging from nursing ward examples to battlefields to boardrooms. And it's these personal stories which thread together as a guide to harness self-belief and advice on navigating turbulent times. Chris is the Managing Director of Management Consultancy Quirk Solutions. He's a strategy, planning and business wargaming specialist who helps organisation improve their plans and strategies through pressure testing techniques and identifying blind spots. He describes himself as sport mad, a proud dad and former Royal Marine. He likes fixing problems, cold days, blue skies, <laughs> rugby friends and the odd beer or two. Chris, thank you so much for joining us here today. You're very welcome, Nicola. Thank you for uh, having me on the show. So let's jump right in. Looking at the genesis of the book, you put the importance of networks to the test and approach 19 people who have helped you in the past, asking each of them to contribute a chapter. So the book is a compilation of all your collective knowledge. Can you please share with our audience how the theme of common purpose brought you all together? Yes, I mean, I suppose it's it's inevitable, really, that we surround ourselves with people that we get on with. And we tend to get on with people who have similar purpose to ourselves, you know, similar importance of, that we place on things. So actually, um, putting together the 19 people was relatively straightforward because I just reached out to those who I was close to, those who I respected and had a lot of time for, um, and who I knew would be interested in, in the, one of the aims of this book, you know, the aims of the book being to help other people um, that when they read the book, they can get some inspiration um, from some tough times that other people have been through but also to support charities, not for this to be a vanity project or something about making money. It was about genuinely trying to help other people as much as we could. So I was literally able just to get in touch with those individuals that had given me advice around purpose um, and, and that side of things and, and ask them if they wanted to be involved. Yes, that's a very good point. Just to highlight that the book is self-funded by all the authors. And I understand that the proceeds are going to go to four charities, SSAFA, the Armed Forces Charity, Cancer Fund for Children, Shelter UK, and Samton Meditation. That's right, yes. So Chris McKibbins has contributed a chapter on networks. And in this chapter, I see there's a, a quote around collaboration where he says, 
that collaborating in networks is an exceptional means to challenge status quo expert thinking and that naive questions from peers or experts in other fields cannot be underestimated as a means of exploration. <laughs> Are we saying that we need to actually encourage and celebrate naivety in our organisations? Um, I think that comes down to a perception of the word naivety. Uh, I think that the, it does have slightly pejorative connotation. So I don't know that necessarily we should celebrate naivety because that might be a step too far for some organisations. But if you flip that on its head, then naivety is there because people don't understand things or don't know things. So actually, if we look at it from a positive perspective, it's about being curious. It's about celebrating curiosity. I think that the more curious we can be about things, the better, the more we can encourage teams within organizations to be curious the better because it's it's the foundation for learning it's the foundation for improving what we do if if we already know and understand something then we're not curious about it so we're always curious about new things so why not explore those why not delve into new areas and and new facets of things that we haven't necessarily explored before and i think that the more that we can encourage our teams and our people as leaders or, or parts of any organization to be curious, the better, frankly. That's a really good point. And of course, curiosity and being creative and interested and looking at things inside out and upside down is the opposite of being hardwired. And I see that in his chapter, Kanishka Misal, The uh, Power of Networking as an Ecosystem, addresses the issue of competition in the workplace and how we are all apparently hardwired to think of ways to defeat our opponents. Now, whether that's defeating our opponents or generally how we go about business, I'm quite interested in this concept of uh, how we uh, rip out all that hard wiring. Uh, and he goes on to argue that there may be a lot of missed opportunities for organizational effectiveness in traditional hierarchical structures. So can I ask you, on that point, how do you suggest to leaders the ways in which they can address potential missed opportunities and leverage the human synergies that we all have at our disposal I think um, the, the best way and the easiest way for, for leaders and organisations to address it is to work out what the core issues that they have on their plate right now are. And instead of the leadership team sitting down and trying to work out what they would do about those core issues, it's almost hand it to teams, but cross-functional teams drawn from across the organization and, and make it make it fun, make it a competition. So, you know, if you've got four or five things that are really troubling you as senior leaders at the moment within the organization, I think the there is a misperception sometimes that leaders have to do all of the thinking as as well as coming up with the potential solutions. And actually 
it sometimes makes more sense for the leaders to be identifying the potential problems and then handing those across to teams to say, I want you to come up with the how. I'm, I'm going to give you the what we need to try and get to and the why this is important, but I want you to come up with the how. And if you can put together those collective cross-functional teams to look at it, they start to enjoy coming up with different solutions. But you know, we, we've done this with um, one of our clients. And what was really interesting was that at the end, we had some really innovative ideas and solutions that the senior leadership team simply wouldn't have come up with themselves because you've got more brains looking at it. But what was even more powerful was comments made from the teams that as individuals, they'd got to know other people in the organization that they wouldn't have previously known. And so in the future, they knew that if they came up against a, an issue, rather than having to work within the hierarchy of the organization, they could go direct to people that they now knew to help them. So you're making your organization through that process much more matrix, much more agile, using the English term of the word, and much more efficient and effective as a result. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of cross-functional small teams drawing in people from all levels of the organization to look at the problems and try and come up with solutions as a, as a sh small group. Yes, and of course, all that plays into innovative thinking as well and the importance of organizations challenging the way they do things, the status quo, looking at things differently, how they think, their processes and systems and so on. Can I ask you how psychological safety might play into that? Because of course, it's all very well us sitting here and saying that people need to push the envelope out and be creative and, and innovative, but it's not necessarily so easy to do that in real time. If, for example, the culture of that company does not encourage this sort of thing, people might even feel they could be putting themselves at risk. Yes, uh, it's, it's an essential component part of being innovative, being creative and being more effective. It, anybody that's read you know, some of the other books or done much reading in and around this area, they often refer to David Marquette's book, Turn the Ship Around, you know, where he, as a US Navy submarine commander, suddenly realised through a series of circumstances that wandering around, walking around, being the leader and giving all the direction and all the orders meant that you only had one brain thinking. And actually, his organization became much more powerful and much more effective by enabling all 133 people to be thinking that we're on board the submarine. And so the only way in that which that's going to happen is people feel psychologically safe to contribute. You know, we've talked already about being curious. We've talked already about putting together cross-functional teams to look at potential solutions. None of that is going to come forward. People aren't going to be curious. They aren't going to suggest solutions if they feel it's dangerous to do so. So we've got to create an environment within which they feel able to do that. Um, you're right that culture plays a role here uh, and getting the culture right within the organisation. And often that comes down to the leadership and how we go about leading change uh, and leading initiatives like this. So 
leaders need to understand some tools and techniques that allow them to provide the space without losing a sense of control or management that they're not taking too much risk and there's lots of techniques that we that you know you can bring to bear on that which we won't go into today because it would take us too long but i think you know the other way in which you can make this psychological safety come around is through games it's it's gamification there's tons of different ways of gaming strategies or problems or issues that you have from you know silos to productivity or anything else like that using a game is always very very powerful in creating the psychological safety because from children and early childhood we understand how games work there are rules we know we're meant to enjoy them we know we're meant to contribute and we want to take part so i think that's a particularly powerful way of of doing the uh, unlocking psychological safety and, and the answers that come from it yes and of course gaming is a particular area of expertise uh, for you um, business wargaming and and so on hmm. One of the big buzzwords today is, of course, resilience. You have mentioned it, but in uh, the chapter by Andrew Powell, he goes into more detail on resilience and purpose. Is there anything there in particular you'd like to pick out for our audience? Um, so, yeah, I mean, Andrew's, Andrew's chapter starts the whole book. Um, and there's a reason why it starts the whole book, because it really does give you a feel for how tough a life some people can have, do have, um, and yet become, in spite of all of that and some of the challenges that they face, incredibly successful. So I think that resilience and purpose, to a degree, do go hand in hand. I think the more a sense of purpose you have, the more resilient that you can that you can be and you know there's there's different areas within that i mean i wouldn't say that they're entirely linked but they certainly serve a serve a purpose of of you know how you can go about things and the the one thing i would pull out from andrew's chapter that i really really liked is he, he pulls out five lessons within the within the book and within his chapter but his fourth lesson is do not set yourself boundaries on what you think you are capable of. You may surprise yourself. And I absolutely love that. Um, I think it's it's important at times that, you know, we recognize that if we always start off believing that we have set limits and this can apply to a business as much as to us personally, if a business believes it's going to create a great plan or a great strategy within the resources that it has it's automatically limiting the creativity that it could bring about and leverage if it actually thinks about it in terms of what could we achieve how could we achieve it what do we want to achieve and then looks at the resources that it might need to do that it can then have a much more meaningful conversation i think the same applies to us as individuals where could i get to what could i be what could I achieve, if you like? And, and then it's, what do I need to make that happen? And I think that, you know, it's, it's just one chapter in there, but I think as a book as a whole, if you know, readers will discover how to dig deep, um, like Andrew did and others like Sarah Downs in her chapter, dust themselves off and keep moving towards their goals one step at a time. And that's a real power within the book and that people will get from the book. 
Yes, one step at a time. That makes so much sense at these times when we have got so much going down in the world, geopolitically, and so on. Uh, I'm a firm believer of what I call bite-sized chunks or one step at a time. But at the same time, it really does help to have that purpose, to have those goals, mm -hmm. to have a, a framework, the guidelines for that journey. As a concluding question, can you share with us how self-belief has actually informed your own purpose? <laughs> okay, um, that's quite a challenging question. Because uh, for me, self-belief is almost has, has subtleties around it of arrogance. And I don't really like that so much. I think it's almost, it's almost the, the flip side to that for me. I think that for a long time, um, because I was in a position of leadership, you know, when I was in the Royal Marines, and then I've basically I've been running a business since I left the Royal Marines for 10 years, I've always been in this in this situation of being in a, as, as a leader. Um, but actually, what I enjoy doing is helping other people. That's that's what really drives me. I I like and have enjoyed from an early age, definitely instilled by my parents um, and their approach to life, to want to look after people who aren't doing so well uh, and to kind of get them back on their feet again. And so counterintuitively, I suppose, what I realize is that throughout my career, both within the military and now commercially, and perhaps why I enjoy consultancy so much in doing the consultancy is the fact that I've always been a better version of myself and the best version of myself when I'm helping other people, when I'm a deputy to somebody rather than being the leader. And that's where I think then for me, I kind of stumbled into consultancy and love it and love what I do because I'm not being a leader. I'm being a catalyst. I'm helping organizations improve. I'm helping individuals improve. I'm helping individuals learn things that will help them with their day-to-day -day lives. So it's not necessarily about my self-belief, because I think if I sat with my self-belief, it would be, I am a leader. And actually, I think I'm probably really better at my purpose and delivering my purpose by not being a leader. Indeed, and hopefully purposeful people will act as a catalyst to people who read it. We will include at the end of the podcast uh, online uh, link so that everybody can get hold uh, of the book. As I say, it is self-funded and all the proceeds are going to charity. Chris, thank you very much for enjoying us here today. Oh, you're very welcome, Nicola. It's been great fun. Thanks for your challenging questions.